Today's episode is brought to you by MetPro. Hey, do you want to improve your health but not sure where to start? With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is extremely difficult. I know it was for me until I found MetPro. The key is to understanding and mastering your metabolism. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want access to the tools their industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co, that's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. And hey, the Dose listeners will get up to one month free if you sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. More on MetPro later in this episode. On today's episode, best-selling author Sebastian Younger. Leaders ru- willingly, uh, enthusiastically run the same risks as the people they lead. When they try to uh, distance themselves from mistakes, when they blame other people, when they refuse to accept consequences for their own actions, uh, when they shelter themselves from harm, physical harm like bullets or financial harm. You know, we all know the CEO that fires 500 people and takes a $50 million year-end bonus. That, that, you know, that's the ethos in the business world in this country right now, the sort of corporate ethos. Those are not leaders, they're opportunists. Hey, welcome to The Dose, a show dedicated to deep and engaging conversations, highlighting individuals that are in the pursuit of authentic and courageous leadership who approach life with insatiable curiosity, bold action, and common sense in these divisive and uncommon times. It's my hope you take something away from each and every one of these conversations and apply it to your own life as we all intentionally attempt to become the best we can possibly be by living out our purpose and calling, committing to a life of service, and helping make this place better than we found it. What an honor and privilege to have one of my most favorite authors on the show. Sebastian Younger is here, the best-selling author of Tribe, War, A Death in Belmont, Fire, and of course my favorite, The Perfect Storm. He's also a co-director of uh, the great documentary, Restrepo, which you, is a must-see. you got to check it out. He was nominated for Academy Award. He's also a Peabody Award winner and a National Magazine Award for reporting. He's got a brand new book out there called Freedom, which I highly recommend. I loved this book. You know, throughout history, we humans have been driven by the quest for two cherished ideals, that of community and freedom. Now, those two don't really coexist all that well because we value individuality and self-reliance, yet we are totally and utterly dependent on community for most of our basic needs. And so in this book, Sebastian explores that. He examines that tension that lies at the heart of what it means to be human and to be a leader, particularly in today's divisive age. For much of a year, this book chronicles Younger and his three friends, a conflict photographer and two Afghan war vets, where they walked the railroad lines of the East Coast. It was this experiment in personal autonomy, but also in interdependence. They dodged railroad cops, sleeping under bridges, cooking over fires, drinking from creeks and rivers. These four men forged a unique reliance on one another. But this book is a great history book. It's, a, it's historical. I was surprised by it. I was pleasantly surprised by it. He weaves this account of their journey with primatology, boxing strategy, the history of the labor strikes, Apache Raiders, the role of women in resistance movements, and the brutal reality of life on the frontier. I love the way Sebastian writes. He is absolutely, like I said, one of my most favorite authors. you got to check out the book Freedom. You're going to enjoy this conversation. It's relevant to today's times. So here he is, the one and only Sebastian Younger, here on The Dose. 
this book, it wasn't what I expected. Do, do people say that when they? Yeah, and I would love, you know, I'd love to, just out of curiosity, I mean, I want to talk about the book, but I'm actually quite curious. What did you expect? I, I'm, I'm actually interested. Uh, I didn't think it was going to be a history lesson. The book is so historical. I, I wasn't expecting that. And I don't know why I wasn't expecting right. it, but it was such a refreshing historical lesson. And that's what I really appreciated right. about the, the the history, the detail of the history that stuff. And I'm a history guy. I mean, I read, I've read all the history books. There's stuff in there that I didn't, I've never even heard before. I didn't even know. Yeah, basically, basically, like <clears throat> you were, humans seem to be the only mammal that I could find where a smaller individual uh, or a smaller group can outfight a larger one and maintain yeah. their autonomy, right? And in most of the animal kingdom, might makes right. And certainly in primate species, the largest alpha male typically is the one that sort of dominates conflicts. And what's so interesting about humans is that, you know, you can look at uh, mixed martial arts and, um, you know, combat sports and find this all the time. Um, smallness actually has some, some advantages. But also you can look at history and see that small determined groups um, like the Irish rebels in 1916 that overthrew mm -hmm. British rule, British occupation of their land, yeah. um, can in the long term outfight, outlast, outfight much greater powers. And of course, we experienced that with the Taliban in Afghanistan. I mean, yeah. there, is a, there is a force that had no tanks, no artillery, no air force. Some of them didn't even have boots. And 20 years later, the greatest military power ever in history voluntarily walked away on their terms. Uh, <laughs> right. Pretty extraordinary. And that's unique to humans. And without that, and I loathe the Taliban, right? But so don't get me wrong. But without that ability, human freedom, as we understand it, basically wouldn't be possible. It would be a world of might makes right. And we know what might does with um, people's freedom. Yeah. And, you know, that was a, that passage that you're talking about there. I reread that and reread that and was thinking about it even this this morning I was thinking about it. I reread it this morning at 5 a.m. I was like, because that was really, that passage stood out to me the most. I never even thought about that. Obviously, I've studied history and studied battles, and, and, that, and I'm with you. Intuitively, it kind of makes sense coming from the Marine Corps. We're small, and you study Vietnam. You study all these battles that, that you know, the American Revolution, part of the reason why we were successful is like we kind of adopted that kind of mentality. But what you wrote at the end of that section, and we're talking about the fight section of, of the book, if you will. You got run, fight, think. And you point out at the end that freedom is in due part to the fact that powerful nations such as ourselves don't always win wars. And that if, if we always crushed insurgencies, then freedom wouldn't be possible. That's fascinating to me. I never thought about it in that, that aspect. But it's, it's true, right? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the world, you know, if, if, if the larger uh, combatant or military always won, the world, I think, would probably be run by a, um, a collection of sort of fascist megastates where powerful people really uh, rig the system for their own benefit. And uh, I mean, that's exactly what the, what the Middle Ages was in, Euro in Europe, right? The feudal system in Europe, the feudal system in China you know, all over the world, the Aztecs. I mean, when you get these top-down hierarchies, the people at the top exploit their power uh, by depriving other people of their autonomy and, and, frankly, their human dignity. And that's not what the world looks like. And no. again, I loathe the Taliban, but the fact that they could defeat us is connected to uh, 
is they're, they're, that's true for the same reasons that Americans were able to defeat the British yep. in the 1770s that the Irish were able to defeat the British in Ireland in uh, after 1916, they're all related. I mean, that those phenomena are all related. And some insurgencies go on to impose their own ghastly oppression <laughs> on right. the people, right? And which is, as far as I'm concerned, what the Taliban did. Uh, but um, it, it just should be noted that that capability is unique to humans and very important for freedom. Yeah, no, no other animal kingdom or no other animal does that. I, that's something I never, I think intuitively, I guess I knew that, but to read it and I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I never thought of it in that way. That everything else is, is by, by dominance and by bullying. I mean, you look at the chimpanzees, our closest kind of relative, it's all about bullying and dominance, right? It's, I mean, there's yeah. no, it, it, the weakling does, or the smaller force doesn't, doesn't run the pack. It's always about this larger force, but us as humans, we take advantage of that ability to be mobile and agile and nimble and, and walking the, di- that was the other part yeah. I love about the book too, though, walking the distances. I never even thought about too, like we're the only species that can really walk that far and be that mobile. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, humans can carry half their body weight all day long. Right. I mean, I looked at some of the, um, you know, special forces, Delta, like some of those outfits and what they have to do physically uh, when I was with the U.S. military as a journalist, the loads that, you know, I was with the 173rd Airborne and the loads that those guys were carrying were just inconceivable and they could carry them all day long. And that's that's pretty unique, uh, not not unique, but it's rare. And, and humans are one of the few species that can do that. I think camels can as well. Um, humans can outrun horses uh, over long distance. Um, the, the, the world record. The, the, yeah, the, the record for the um, Western States 100 which crosses the Sierra Nevadas uh, for 100 miles, uh, the human record um, is uh, would beat all but, I think, one of the uh, records set by horse and rider teams in the, in the last decades. Um, it, it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the record is 14 hours. So a yeah. human being ran 100 miles over the Sierras in 14 hours. <laughs> I think one horse has been able to beat that. Isn't that crazy? Again, it goes back to the original questions, like what did you weren't expecting in the book? This is what I mean, what I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting to get this education about human endurance, about how chimpanzees uh, have dominance over their their pack, uh, uh, how uh, there's so much packed in there. The history, the, the Native American history, the history of the Apache, stuff that I've, I've, I thought I knew everything about. I mean, I've read about the Old West, about all of those groups, and there's so much, you must have... I don't know how you did all that work in there. The references are just incredible. Yeah, I did a, I did a lot of research. The, so the Apache are interesting because they were in the Southwest, of course, and they were very poor, materially poor. The Pueblo tribes that lived on top of mesas, we've seen the photos, we know, you know, we, we're all mm-hmm. familiar with that. They cult, they were cultivators, they had fields, they were very affluent, very stable. Um, and when the Spaniards showed up in the late 1500s, um, the Pueblo tribes were defeated or surrendered immediately. Like they got rolled immediately. The Apache remained uh, ungoverned, uncontrolled, remained free, if you will, for the next 300 years or so. And it's because they were poor and mobile. They were materially poor. They didn't carry, they literally didn't carry much. Mm -mm. And they were so mobile. They were just too mobile to be cornered and subdued. 
So basically, my book is divided into three sections, run, fight, and think. Uh, if you can't outrun your oppressor, which is the most probably the most ancient way of avoiding uh, oppression, if you can't outrun your oppressor, you're going to have to outfight him. Uh, if you can't outfight him, you're going to have to outthink him. Yeah. And that's where you get into some of these sort of like uh, political strategies, insurgent strategies, uh, strategies, the uh, the labor movement 100 years ago in this country facing insurmountable odds. And yet they pulled it off. I mean, the, the labor movement, I looked at the labor strikes in Massachusetts about 100 years ago and um, in, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, for example. And, you know, these are for these are this is immigrant labor, many of whom didn't even speak English, unbelievably exploited and, and, and powerless. And they they won. I mean, they defeated the the government, the U.S. government and the National Guard and the corporate interest. I mean, they they did it for a fair wage and fair working conditions. And one of the ways they did it was by using women. Uh, movements like this that, that fail to take advantage of the incredible asset of having women on the team uh, usually fail. I tried to look at common denominators of successful um, uh, underdog groups. And one of them is that they use women very well in their operations. So, for example, in Lawrence, uh, you know, the National Guard with fixed bayonet uh, were, you know, continually beating up on and killing the, the men who were in the streets striking, the, yeah. the workers, the male workers who were striking. They didn't stand a chance against the National Guard. And then they started putting women on the front lines. And these kids with, you know, 18-year-old boys with fixed bayonets don't want to be killing women, right? I mean, right. there is a social sanction against that. Not that it doesn't ever happen, but um, – and they didn't know what to do. And as one one police sergeant said – uh, police captain said, um, he said, one, one, one cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. And that tipped the balance of power on the streets in a crucial way in Lawrence, Massachusetts. It's, it's amazing. Going back to, again, where it wasn't what I expected when I'm starting reading the book, you know, you're chronicling your kind of walk across, uh, you know, basically it was to pack on your back with a couple of guys. And just kind of living off the land with no agenda, just to walk and just to get and to survive. Did the book come out of doing that, or was okay? I got this idea for a book. I'm going to do this and see what happens. What was what was the genesis? What was the chicken I, and the so egg? So yeah, you're referring to a, a trek that I took with two or three other guys. Two of them were former soldiers. Mm -hmm. We'd all been in combat. Another guy was um, a combat photographer who was with a good friend of mine as he was dying in Libya literally holding his hand in the back of a pickup truck. I became bro friends, brothers, really, with that guy. Mm -hmm. Guillermo was his name, he's a Spanish guy. Anyway, so we'd all been in a lot of combat, and we walked along the railroad lines from Washington, D.C. to Philly, and then we decided to turn west. Instead of going to New York, we decided to turn west and head for, for, for Pittsburgh. It was all along the railroad lines, and we chose that because um, it's it, it's sort of no man's land. It's completely illegal, mm -hmm. and you do have to do a fair amount of dodging the police and all that, which isn't that hard actually. But it's this no man's land, uh, and you you know you can sort of do whatever you want. And and you know we were sleeping under bridges and in abandoned buildings, and cooking over fires and getting our water out of creeks. And as I say in the book, for four hundred miles, we were the only people in the world who knew where we were on a given night. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said there's. You know, there's many definitions of freedom, but surely that's one of them. And so when I start, when I decided to write a book called Freedom, about freedom, 
I cast my mind back. I just asked myself the question, um, what was the freest I've ever been? And, you know, inevitably it depends on how you define it. But, um, and I think there are different definitions that are good for different ages of one's lifetime. But um, immediately the, the this trek, this railroad trek came to mind. And so I incorporated that and the history of the land we were passing through. We were walking through Pennsylvania, uh, a land that was bitterly contested between the um, the settlers and the native populations. And it was a place where the settlers thought that they would, and they did in a way, uh, find freedom from uh, government oversight, government oppression, government control. It was The wilderness was a place of freedom, but it was also a place of incredible danger. And so to counter that danger, a danger not from just from nature, but from the native population that didn't want them there. And to counter that danger, they were way better off working in groups. And uh, part of the deal was that if people were attacked along the frontier, it was your duty uh, to to congregate at the stock at the stockade and help defend, help fight the the Indians, right? And if you weren't willing to do that, uh, you were not really you were not welcome in that community. And so basically, they trade. My my point is, as as freedom goes up, so does danger. Mm-hmm. And what you do to mitigate that danger is to act collaboratively with other people. Uh, but then when you do that, you have to abide by their norms, their rules. And so it's very hard to be completely free and completely safe at the same time. In fact, it's in human terms, it's basically impossible. That's what I love about your book, because I think the word freedom today gets bandied about. And people don't really understand what it means. I guess coming from the military, you kind of get indoctrinated by what we think it means and the sacrifices, of course, that, you know, that all of this is, is written in, in blood. Right. And so I understand that. But I, I, I get a little frustrated even in, in today's world where I hear people talking about that that sacrifice doesn't come with freedom. I think, I think a lot of times people think freedom means sacrifice doesn't come with it. And you write about that a little bit in the book. And it, I thought it was very eloquent how you put it. What is what does that mean to you when I say that you can't have freedom without some layer of extreme sacrifice? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, listen, Western society has figured out how to uh, put at arm's length, uh, if not completely eradicate any immediate threat to our survival as a society. Um, most hardship, uh, uh, most um, exhausting labor. I mean, you know, for most people in this society, those things that were a daily part of the human experience are no longer a part of our daily lives. Right. And um so, you know, in a group, in a more sort of, quote, primordial human group that was facing the adversity of the natural world in its efforts to survive, the sacrifices that were required by all of its members are sort of obvious. And uh, I mean, people were hunting to survive. They were sometimes going without food, without water, extreme temperatures, uh, enemies. Uh, uh, I mean, to rival tribes and groups that would attack them. And if you weren't willing to grab a spear and defend your your group, you know, what really, what good are you? Like that, that, I mean, that's a sort of basic human, that's a basic standard. Are you willing to defend this group is a basic standard for, uh, are you a worthy person? And, uh, you know, there are equivalent expectations for both sexes, not men and women. And so uh, now Western society has sort of mechanized all that stuff and mitigated all that stuff. And so it's possible to think that you're, you, you really don't, 
owe anything. You can belong to this amazing society and actually not contribute anything. And I think there's a great law. People think that that's a form of uh, that they've been sort of emancipated from the expectations of the group. I think they've actually experienced a great loss. I mean, psychologists have shown that, uh, I mean, it's well known that when you act in service of a group, an important group, a core group, when you act in service of it, that you your sense of meaning and fulfillment in life goes up. Absolutely. And when you and when you're not, uh, we're not required to to participate in the group. You you you, you your life feels more uh, sort of meaningless, and and that that's a that's a, a precursor to depression and suicide and all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the owing of thing, and that's uh, that, that's kind of the eloquence, I guess, that that he certainly that that I never, I believed, but I never really articulated well that with this freedom we do owe something. Right. There's something has to be paid back for us to have it. And I don't know, is that part of what you're hoping people get across reading this is kind of this appreciation of how fragile freedom is? Yeah. So it's important to divide the, the, the word up a little bit. So one very important definition of freedom is that you're free from the tyranny of an outside group. Right. And for all of human history, outside warlike groups have attacked oppressed, enslaved, and massacred other groups that, were, that couldn't defend themselves. And if, if, you, um, if you cannot defend yourself against a predatory group of other humans, uh, you will not remain free or probably not remain alive for very long. I, I wrote about a, a, a group called the Yamnaya mm-hmm. that were from the Eastern Steppe, the Russian Steppe, and they were, the, were some of the first people to use horses in combat. And... and um, they just rode roughshod over Europe and they invaded uh, Iberia, the Iberian Peninsula, what's now Spain and France, uh, uh, Spain and Portugal. And um, over the course of about about 100, this is 5,000 years ago, over the course of about 100 years, their tactics were so superior, their weaponry was so superior, um, that they completely eradicated all of the men in Iberia. All of them, Right. There is no male DNA surviving from the Neolithic in Iberia. They wow. mated with the women, of course. And uh, so, you know, the, 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 the Iberians were not able to defend their freedom from this, from this group. You have to be able to protect yourselves. And, and honestly, there's some evidence that our political orientations are rooted in part uh, in genetics, that they're partly hereditary. They know this from twin studies. So the classic conservative mindset, and I happen to be a Democrat, but I think both both parties are uh, uh, have an enormous amount to contribute to our society. And this is what I think one of the things Republicans contribute is this mindset that, like, look, the world is a dangerous place. If you don't defend yourself, if you're not prepared to defend yourselves, and you don't have a viable army and fund it properly and have a sort of um, some at least minimal sort of martial ethos in your society – Essentially, the Yamnaya are going to cut a, a swath through your country and kill you and enslave you. And um, uh, that's not a typical liberal concern, right? Right. But the liberals are also concerned with something very important. And it's the other definition of freedom. You have to be safe from predation from an outside group. You also have to be safe from oppression by powerful leaders, mm-hmm. right? You need a society that's fair. There's a, there's a fair dis- distribution of income uh, that no one is above the law uh, and and uh, that people's individual rights 
are, are uniform and are respected by everybody, even people who are very powerful. And that those are classical, sort of classic liberal concerns. So when you get those two definitions of freedom and you combine them in one society, you have a society that's fairly just and fairly well protected. And one of the things that I think is unfortunate now is that those things are starting to split and they're not being combined into a cohesive society. They're getting split apart, extremized and, and sort of demonized. And that to me is, um, and there's also a completely false narrative of about how the federal government is, is actually on a, an oppressor of American citizens is complete nonsense. The left indulges in that nonsense. And of course, recently, so does the right wing. Um, it just com- that's complete stupidity. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess I go back to, and I hearken to the days I would hope when I, when I talk about freedom and I do when I, when and I, I hate the poisoning of the left and the right that you're alluding to. But to me, it always goes back to the, the, the natural law piece of it, which you talk about, which I learned too, about the Dutch scholar Hugo uh, Grotius. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. But he was the, brought the idea of natural law in there, that we have these, inna- which brought forth this innateable light, right concept, right? That this was bestowed upon me by the universe, by God, by what are you going to believe? So you can't take it away from me, right? And so I'm, I'm a big believer in that. And it seemed like that was something that we could all kind of rally around, regardless if we were left or right, Democrat or Republican. At least we had that, that we could, we could hold on to and, and say this is our common ground. It doesn't seem like, it seems like some people don't even appreciate that side of it. What do you think about when you hear me say that? Yeah, I mean, so, so Grotius, what his, he was trying to um, establish sort of some some civil norms in war. Uh, and I think if I remember correctly, he said, so that man, men may know that um, that not all things are allowed, mm-hmm. but uh, also that not that nothing's allowed, that they, they have to understand that there's a there's a, there's there's limits, a middle yeah, ground right. in mm-hmm. war where you can't do everything and you're but also you're not just permitted from doing anything and he rooted that in natural law basically his point is like uh humans back in that day they said just said man they simply said man man was created by god and so that means that individual individual people have uh have rights they have individual rights because they're god's creation but so what people would do back then is say well the enemy, whoever it may, the Moors or the Chinese or whoever it may be, <laughs> the enemy, they're actually not human. So they don't have rights. So we can do whatever we want to them, including kill and enslave them. That's That was the end run around Grotius's sort of use of natural law. And so I think one of the things that you find now uh, is the sort of like the vilification, the demonizing of opponents that say the sort of woke left sometimes done d- does where you know, you basically you're you're a, you're a uh, you 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 know you enjoy white male privilege so you don't have rights you're essentially less than human in their in their sort of moral universe they're saying that's you know just for example white men are less than human because of their excessive privilege so they don't really have rights where they can defend themselves against spurious charges of of wrongdoing right and it's grotesque. But likewise, of course, the right wing does exactly the same thing. And some of the demonizing of immigrant groups and people of color and of and of Democrats, let's not forget, um, it's basically a first step into saying 
you know what, you're not fully, you're not fully human. You don't really deserve uh, to be accorded the rights of humanity. And furthermore, you don't really deserve to be a citizen of this country. You don't, you don't quite measure up. This is a white Christian country. And if you're not white and Christian, you really are a latecomer. And, uh, you know, we don't, your vote is not the same as my vote. And I think that's what a lot of this, like, the, the, the election, the 2020 election was fraudulent. I mean, everyone knows no one was stuffing ballot boxes, right? I mean, there's a few nut jobs that think that. But I think the deeper encoded message is, look, a lot of people voted by mail-in ballots who, you know, their parents might have been born in another country. And, you know, really, are they really, I mean, truly, I mean, they have the, okay, so they have the birth certificate, but are they really American? Like, come on, let's be real. <laughs> I, mean, I think there's a lot of that insinuation that actually underlies the real intent of saying stop the steal. They're really talking about a demographic truth, which is uncomfortable to conservatives at the moment. And we'll be right back after this message. Hey, you're like me. You're wanting to improve your health, but never sure where to start. With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is difficult. I know it has been for me until I found MetPro. According to MetPro, the key to seeing results is mastering your metabolism. At MetPro, your metabolism isn't some mystery. It's a data point. Armed with hard science, MetPro is your health concierge, delivering one-on-one coaching and personalized nutrition and fitness regimes. It's not just about weight loss. MetPro's coaches provide busy professionals, athletes, weekend warriors, and everyone in between the support and education they need to live a healthier life. MetPro's team of experts has worked with the most recognizable name in sports, entertainment, and business. They've helped thousands of individuals like you and me transform their bodies by hacking their metabolism. I've been using MetPro for five weeks, and I couldn't be more thrilled. I finally feel like I got it figured out. This onboarding program was great. The intuitive app I can't say enough of. It helps me plan my meals, gives me a shopping list. I'm eating the foods I enjoy. And most importantly, I got increased energy and I'm seeing weight loss. I couldn't be more thrilled with MetPro. Recently, they launched a new tool that allows you to experience the same science and tailored strategy that their experts use. Look, this isn't food logging. It's not a tool or a workout app. The MetPro app allows you to track, analyze, and learn what your metabolism responds to best. And that's the key. That's the thing I've never had before until now. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want to access the tools that industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co slash dose. That's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. Best of all, listeners will get up to one month free when they sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. And now back to the show. Well, it just seems like everybody, I don't know why common sense has gone out the window on both sides. Right? I, I feel, I've said this on past episodes, I, I, I feel like I have no political home, to be quite honest. I feel like, I know there's a lot of people like me. We said that we look at this landscape and we're like, you know, what the F is going on here? You know, and, and for me, and, and I don't know, I don't know if that was an intention of your book. It does for me, though. It seems like it, it gives me a sense of comfort of, number one, how unique we are as human beings. That's one thing I got from taking your book. Number two, that history is so, and I, I hope people get this from this, and I've always thought this is why I love studying history, because history, we, we try to sanitize it so much, and I, I love all of history, and I think the more, the, the, the good, bad, the ugly, the warts and all, makes me appreciate freedom in this country, in this experiment even more. Like, the more I read about 
the honesty of what happened to the Native Americans, what happened in slavery, the more that it makes me appreciate this country. It doesn't make me hate it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it um, uh, you know, I think the study of history is imperative. I think uh, our society is headed generally in the right direction. I mean, look, within my lifetime, there was a civil rights movement that radically changed the, the exactly. position, the role of, of African-Americans in the society. I mean, in the 1970s, there were still miscegenation laws. If I'm not <laughs> right. if I'm not mistaken, I'm going by memory here. But I believe in some states it was illegal for a black a, a black a person of color and a white person to marry. Right. That's absolutely How they true. define person of color is a, is a mystery. Right. Like, it, I mean, is, you know, one one tenth. Like enough to, you know, I mean, that's the devil's in the details. And I don't know how they adjudicated that. But the point is, into, you know, well into my lifetime, um, miscegenation laws were still active. It's nuts, yeah. right? So so we're definitely heading in the right direction. I mean, uh, the, the rise of women in the workplace and in politics and in many, in all things is like absolutely extraordinary in my lifetime. So, but to, we, to know where we're headed, we got to know where we've come from. Well, and, that's the, that's uh, the power behind it. Because and that's what yeah. that's what I and I want everybody cause to me when I when I see all of that that says yeah look how it doesn't mean that I need to rest on my laurels it just means look how all of this has happened yeah. because of these things because we've laid this kind of grand experiment or at least defined freedom in this in this way yeah. all of that has been possible yeah and, and, I, and I think the right wing is sort of tired of what they feel to be the endless guilt trip by the left. Yeah. of oppression of various groups, you know, so I, you know, I mean, I like, I mean, I'm not going to weigh in on whether that's legitimate, but I think that's where they're coming from in a kind of like cultural sense, like, all right, we get it. We, you know, like America acted badly, got it. Can we move on now? I think that's where they're coming <laughs> from. So, um, but, um, you know, one thing I would say about our obligation to society is that um, freedom, in my mind, freedom means we have the right to be free of oppression. Yeah. It does not, it never has meant in human history, it never has meant that we have the right to be free of all obligation. Exactly. That's not a, that's not a, a, a uh, realistic, that's not a realistic goal for any society. And I think one of the tragedies of our society is that we are so affluent and so mechanized that we ask hardly anything from anybody. And, yeah. Um, there's a real loss there. I mean, we know psychologists will tell you that the more you sacrifice for something, the more you value it. Absolutely. And yeah, and 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 we we you know we we aren't called to make much of any sacrifice for this society. Some many choose to, uh, but it's not it's not a um, it's not a qualification for entry into the group. And you know, one of the things that makes, say, being in, in the in the military or in the in the fire department or whatever so meaningful is that it hurts like hell mm -hmm. to, 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 to pass the various tests and qualifications to join those elite groups. Like, it, it, it really hurts. Like, basic training doesn't feel good, and et cetera. And firemen go go through hell to, 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 to pass the test. So, you know, once you're in there, it has enormous meaning because you've sacrificed a lot for it and are prepared to sacrifice more to help your brothers and sisters that are in danger and, and to help citizens and defend the nation, you know? And so, uh, you know, I don't, uh, you know, we don't need to, you know, like figure out if we can start up sort of like communist work camps in the summer for the youth. Like I'm not, <laughs> right. I'm not suggesting that 
I actually know a lot of people that grew up under communism and they said that those work camps in the summer were wonderful. Like they absolutely loved them because it allowed the teenagers to get out of the house and do what teenagers do. And it gave them a sense of belonging to a country and they're all given an AK and ta taught how to use it in case the Americans invaded. You know, I mean, I would have signed up for that in a heartbeat if I was 18 years old, but right. that's not what I'm talking about. I think there's lesser version, less organized versions of group participation that as a nation we actually could engage in. And I, if I may, I would just run through three easy ones um, yeah. that I've found very, very meaningful. Um, you know, first of all, I almost died last year from a, I had an undiagnosed aneurysm in my pancreatic artery. Wow. And it, um, I'm just a freak gen genetic thing. It was not related to anything. It was undiagnosed, no symptoms. And one day it ruptured and I bled out into my own abdomen. I, I lost two thirds of my blood Didn't and work. I almost died. Um, in fact, I should have died. It's a miracle that I didn't die. Uh, my, my blood pressure was 60 over 40 by the time they even got me to the hospital. I, I needed 10 units, but I made Good it. Lord. And, yeah, it was horrific. And um, not very many people survived this. And it took me 90 minutes to get to the ER. And the fact that I was alive when I got there is a miracle. But wow. So 10 people saved my life. I got 10 units of blood, right? Uh, the great thing about blood is it doesn't care if you're rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, white, black, does not. We all run on blood. We all need it. We can all give it. And one way to feel connected to this great entity of the United States and, frankly, of humanity is to give a pint of blood. And now, you know, I owe the universe 10 units, right? And <laughs> 11 for good measure. And then I'm just going to keep doing it. And I give blood as much as I can because I'm saving somebody else. And now my yeah. two little girls get to have a father. Right. Yeah. I'm doing it for them. And so that's the first one. The second one is vote. You have to vote. You're not really an American if you do not vote. Yeah. Right. I don't care what your what flavor of politics you have. I could care less. You have to vote. Uh, and when you yeah. don't vote, you're saying, you know what, I'm just going to let other people decide how my life's going to go and what <laughs> kind of country I live in. That's just nonsense. Right. Yeah. You know, and finally, finally, serve on jury duty. Um, jury is what means that a, that one powerful person cannot decide the fate of another person, right? Not one judge, not one prosecutor, not one sheriff, not one president. No individual can decide the fate of another person. And that's because of jury duty. It's a jury of your peers. You know those three things, I promise you. You don't have to join the Marines. You don't have to join the Peace Corps. <laughs> right. Just do those. I mean, those are great things to do. Don't get me wrong. But if you do those three things... Virtually any any person is capable of them, and it will make you feel like you belong to something uh, bigger than yourself, greater than yourself. Well, and that's the key, and I love all of those because it is about becoming part of something bigger than yourself because all the things that human beings chase, all those buckets you're trying to fill that satisfy the ego or, or your, yourself, you know, your limiting beliefs or doubts or whatever, the hunger – if you chase it directly, it never happens. But if you sacrifice so others may prosper, if you do things, all those buckets get filled exponentially full. I mean, that's just the way the universe works. And and you're right. And sometimes we sit there, I don't know what to do. Those are three things that we could do today, you know, yeah. without any without any qualifications except fogging yeah. a mirror, basically, right? And so, yeah, you need to be able to – I love that. We say that the theme on this show – is about that. It's like it's. I think it's the the universal obligation that we all have is to make the place better than we found it. You know, 
one of my old scout masters yeah. says, we're going to make this campsite. I don't care what it looked like when we walked into it. We're going to make it better when we leave. And I think that's the obligation that we have the short time that we're here. And you have to. You know, to. The, there's another benefit. Um, yeah. No, there's another benefit, which doesn't get talked about that much. But again, psychologists will tell you that contributing to the public good actually increases happiness. Yeah, for sure. It I believe increases it. a sense of psych psychological security and meaning. It makes life feel worth living. It helps make life feel worth living. And uh, it raises oxytocin levels, uh, which are good for your blood pressure and blah, blah, blah. Like it, I mean, it, it's good on every level, physiological and psychological and, of course, social. Um, and so there's a, there, there are, you, you yourself will benefit by what are called selfless acts. But they're actually, self, ironically, selfless acts are incredibly good for the self. Uh, so it's win, win, win. I mean, there's sort of no downside. Is, is the book Freedom, going back to that, is, is it a call to arms in that sense, a, a call to service? I mean, I don't know if overtly you're saying that, but I guess I do get that message out of that. Or maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Well, yeah, I mean, I wanted to use history um, up through the labor movement about 100 years ago in America. I wanted to use history to, first of all, point out that um, a free society requires people yeah. to contribute. Yeah. Those contributions are not a diminishment of their freedom. It actually is what strengthens their freedom. Absolutely. And yeah. And, um, and so, you know, all this sort of silly stuff about, I mean, people think that the freedom means that no one can tell them what to do. It's complete nonsense, right? I mean, yeah. these are people who are living in a way that is utterly dependent on a highly technological mechanized society and totally <laughs> dependent on a massive supply chain that's run by the federal and regulated by the federal government, right? Yeah. Like no one's drilling their own oil to put in their truck. <laughs> no one's building their own trucks. No one's doing their own surgery. No, you know, et cetera, et cetera. No one's grinding their own eyeglasses so that they can read their, their <laughs> stupid online posts. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. They're totally dependent on the system. And the idea that they're somehow autonomous and no one can tell them what to do is just childish drivel. Like, as I yeah. say in the book, only children owe nothing. That's right. Uh, and they will grow up and start to owe quite a lot, hopefully. But as children, they owe nothing. And when adults pretend they owe nothing, they're effectively saying, I'm just a child. Take care of me and don't take me seriously. Yeah, that's the ultimate selfish act. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's the ultimate in selfishness. And and. I think it's important to distinct, distinguish between that because we've seen that as like, oh, you know, the whole kind of don't tread on me thing. It's like it, there's a balance there. It's, a, it's freedom from we, – we all are should be guaranteed freedom of oppression and tyranny, and that's really what it boils down to. But to think that we don't have to sacrifice or owe, that's what I mean. That there, they, There's a price to pay for that, that freedom, right? And it doesn't mean you're being oppressed, you know? Right, and, and look, you know, my 90 – my 92-year-old mother, who just passed away, but my 92-year-old mother couldn't, at her age, could not make a sacrifice for the country. Let's be realistic, <laughs> right? So some, some people make overt physical sacrifices. But for me, the important thing is, and you know, you know, we have a military that's half of 1% of the population. We don't need a military that's comprised of 20% of the population or 50%. Right. I mean, we couldn't afford it for... for 
among other things, but we don't need it, right? Right. So it's what I'd say the important thing is you have to throw out the idea that the government does not have the right to require certain things. Of course it does. The government requires that you drive on the right-hand side of the road and stop at red lights. And if you think otherwise, the government has the right to arrest you so you don't get somebody killed, right? right. You know this, right? Um, the government has the right to impose taxes on you. The great thing about de a democracy is that the government has the right to do all this and then is accountable at the, at the ballot box and in court. And if you think we should be driving on the left-hand side of the road or on both sides of the road, take it to court, right? It's a democracy. If you win in court, that becomes the law of the land. The one thing you cannot do if you don't like what's happening, you cannot resort to violence in a democracy. As soon as you do, you are basically saying, I do not want to live in a democracy. I want to live in a society where might makes right. Yeah. And that, to me, is a very, very important point. If you don't accept the authority of the government to require certain things that are contestable in court and um, referable to the ballot box, if you don't believe that, you you really should move to Somalia where no one will get in your business. Yeah. Except the jihadis. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think it's an important point to say that, you know, the world doesn't run, or at least us, with the freedom. You, it is, you can't have a might, might makes right ideology. And I think a lot of times we still think that's what's ruling the day, and it really hasn't. I think that's the big the historical lesson I got from your book. I, I think I, I knew this in, intuitively, but I think I just never really thought about it explicitly. I love what you did in the book, to be quite I do. I really, it's a, it, it was a very surprising book. I've always liked the way you wrote. I don't, again, I'm not a big, I don't know all my literary examples, and I hate even to compare you, but it, it, I was a big Hemingway fan, and when I read your stuff, it, you kind of have a Hemingway feel to you. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that, but it, it does kind of come across as Hemingway-esque. Is that a, hopefully you take that as a compliment? I don't know. I'm not a writer. Oh so. yeah, of course. No, I grew up re reading Hemingway, and you know sometimes he can sound like a parody of himself. But Hemingway at <laughs> right. his best is, you know, Hemingway at his best is just, uh, it's breathtaking. Uh, in yeah. Its clarity, its simplicity, its artfulness. Like I mean, it really, you know, and and it's so simple. And, yeah. Uh, and it looks so easy to do. It's like watching Floyd Mayweather in the boxing ring. You're like, I could do that. I mean, he just <laughs> tilted his head sense. and missed the punch so yeah. easy. Like, right. And and that's that that's the artistry of it. It looks simple. It looks like anyone should be able to do it. Well, try try get climbing into the ring and see how that goes. Yeah. Well, that's what I liked about you. And to me, because you're right, I liked his and he was known for that with the kind of his simple style. And, and I mean that in a complimentary way. But it kind of like his my favorite book of his is In Our Time. And it kind of like your writing kind of reminds me of in our time. I don't, I mean, I know that the themes are completely different, but it does, it has that feel to it. I guess yeah. maybe it's because that kind of on the road with your backpack and with the dog at your ankles and all that kind of stuff just sounds yeah. like Hemingway. It was, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. What do you Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad it, it's, uh, uh, it, it was a book that I didn't anticipate writing and it, the, the idea came to me and I was thought, you know, it was such a misused word and it's such an important human value. It's, it's one of the few things people will die for. They'll die for their families, for their community if they're threatened. 
and they will die for their freedom and the freedom of those they love. And that's, that's basically it. And I just thought, what uh, I've written about the bonds of tribe in my book, Tribe. And I thought, mm-hmm. what that this other thing people will die for, what's it about? Why do we have access to it? Um, and again, in, in, in a historical sense, um, you know, I studied anthropology in college. I try to look through things, look at things through that lens. And as a species, like how, why is it that humans can be self-defining and autonomous, even if, even if they're faced with a, with a more powerful foe? Why is it we can pull off that sort of jujitsu mm-hmm. uh, and remain free? And that's what I wanted to understand with this book. It's a, it's a great piece of work. I mean, what are you hoping people, I, I know I kind of asked this earlier, but who do you hope reads this or, and what do you hope they walk away with? <laughs> well, all writers want everyone to read their book, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I mean, I want people to walk away with an understanding that they are, that there is no meaningful life and probably no biological life outside of community. Yeah. Um, we are a social species. We derive, we derive our physical safety from others, the proximity of others and our emotional safety and our sense of meaning in the world, uh, from being part of a community of, of, of beloveds, uh, and a wider community of people that we understand uh, that we owe our, our livelihood and our survival to, uh, even if yeah. you don't love them, we all know we need we need society to survive. And that if you really understand that, that incurs a kind of, of respect and a veneration and a sense of obligation and, a, and of duty and hopefully a respect for others, other individuals that are also part of this group. And, um, you know, if you start splitting that off, like, well, they you know, they're not really part of this group because, you know, whatever, you're wrong, man. You're not American. Mm-hmm. You are wrong and, and you should be out of here. Yeah, that's what I, I as you're explaining that, that's kind of what I I love about the book. I've been on this mission with guests over the last, trying to find guests, and I've had a handful of them on here. And this is one of the reasons why I brought you is I I, I want to get back to a place where people can have meaningful conversations without planting flags, you know what I mean? And I think that's what I love appreciate right. about this book is this this honest look at history. It brings you together. It makes you appreciate, wow, you know, we have a lot more in common than 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 divides us. And yeah. Yeah. And let's, you know, let's be honest here. Our leaders suck. Yes. In America. Yeah. Right? Let's just be honest. I'm Talking about all of them. Oh. Right? I happen to be a Democrat, and I'm, I'm happy to pile on to Donald Trump if you want me to. Mm-hmm. But I'm really talking about just about all of them. There yeah, was exactly. an amazing incident in, in the uh, uh, the Irish uh, War of Liberation in 1916 in the Dublin Uprising, uh, uh, the, uh, the Easter Rising, as it's called. Mm-hmm. The, the military commander of the forces in Dublin, which is the focal point of the combat against British occupation, um, the commander, a guy named Connolly, um, was he was so careless with his own safety that his own aides were trying to sort of dr- keep him from exposing himself to gunfire because he felt that he had to scout out positions uh, for the sandbags and the machine guns and all that stuff that he had to personally scout those things out himself 
under fire and his aides were constantly trying to drag him behind safety like sir we need you can you not get yourself killed and he was wounded twice and then eventually executed by the brits and you know my point one of my points in this book is that leaders leaders willingly uh enthusiastically run the same risks as the people they lead yeah uh and when they try to uh, uh, distance themselves from mistakes, when they blame other people, when they refuse to accept consequences for their own actions, uh, when they shelter themselves from harm, uh, physical harm like bullets or financial harm. You know, we all know the CEO that fires 500 people and takes a $50 million year-end bonus. Yeah. That, that, you know, that's the ethos in the business world in this country right now. That's sort of corporate ethos. Those are not leaders. They're opportunists. Yeah, they're opportunists. And we have the right as voters, as taxpaying citizens, we have the right to demand leaders for our country, not opportunists. And they're very, the opportunists are very, very easy to spot. And, uh, you know, any 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 hunter gatherer society for the last 50,000 years on this planet would throw people like that right off a cliff. Yeah. Yeah. I love that part of the book where you highlighted what you just said there, the difference between a leader and opportunist. That's what we have. We don't have leaders in any any of the, the, the visible, both corporate and in the government. I mean, it's that they're all opportunists and real leadership, yeah. like you said, follows what Connolly did. He's on the front lines. I mean, God, I could give you a Marine Corps story. I mean, and, you know, and you've traveled with as a journalist, and you saw it when you made Restrepo, all that stuff, right? I mean, you saw what the real leaders yeah. were and who the opportunists were. They stand yeah, absolutely. out. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Sebastian, you do great work, my friend, and it's an honor to have you on this show. I can't speak enough about this book. I want everybody to get it. And um, how long ago, I was going to ask you, time frame, how long ago did you do this journey? I didn't get a sense of when, like, what time frame was this? How many years ago did you do that journey? Oh, most of, oh, it was back about 10, uh, let's see, uh, back about nine years ago that I started. Nine years ago. Uh, almost nine years ago. And most of the trip was done uh, off and on for about a year. And then there was a few more add-on trips uh, that continued after that. Um, not a lot. Yeah. So I would usually, we'd walk 50, 100 miles was our maximum, I think, 50 miles, 40 miles, 60 miles at a time, and then come back for another chunk a couple months later. And, and uh, uh, it allowed us to sort of rest and refit and process our experience and let the blisters heal. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I guess we'll end on this. How how were you different at the end of that, you know, as, as a as a man? And I don't want to spoil the ending of the book because I want people to read it. But I mean, yeah. Yeah, well, I, you know, I was, uh, I just turned, I, I just turned 50 before this. My dad had just died. I'd lost a close friend in combat. Um, and my marriage was ending and to a woman that I really loved, but the marriage clearly wasn't working. You know, she and I are still friends today, an amazing woman. So, you know, it all ended well, but we, we, we were getting divorced and it was a painful time. And, uh, I was grieving my friend and, and I was trying to face, you know, I was trying to sort of unhook from combat and sort of come yeah. come home to a, quote, ordinary life. Uh, and um, I just knew a few other guys who were going through similar things, including the divorce part of it. And uh, so with four guys, I set, I set out. Um, literally half the group was in the middle of getting divorced. 
And for <laughs> 400 miles, uh, nobody talked about it. I mean, neither of the guys who were getting divorced, neither of them brought it up. And nobody else asked about it. And, uh, you know, the trip was a respite from those painful things. And it was yeah. exactly what we needed. And at the end, I realized, like, all right, I'm good. I got to return to my life. You know, this is... Yeah. I was in sort of like limbo out here, this amazing, brutal limbo. I mean, we're carrying 60, 70 pounds, walking all day long, dodging the cops, drinking out of creeks. Like it was it's not like it was easy and it's not like it was fun, but it was one of the best things I've ever done. Yeah. And I was like, you know, eventually you got to return to, you know, normal life. And uh, and I did. And it was it was exactly what I needed. Yeah, great. Sebastian, I love what you do. I'm so honored you came on the show. How can people... Uh, obviously you're easy to find, but uh, how do you want people to connect with you? Oh, I mean, you can find me on Facebook. I'm not a big one for social media. I still use a flip phone. So, I, you know, I'm. Uh, <laughs> but you can find me on Facebook. My website is uh, SebastianYounger.com. That's J-U-N-G-E-R, SebastianYounger.com. And uh, once in a while, I put a quote from my book on Twitter, but... <laughs> it's, it's, it's thin going. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd rather have you read my books than read my Twitter feed. That's for sure. Well, I'll have links to all that, to all your books, to everything that you've, you've produced. And, and, and uh, I just am a huge fan. And thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. My okay, pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dosa Leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we work together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.